0: Welcome to Apologetics with Brian O'Connell, where in each episode, I answer difficult questions that confront Christianity. Over the past several episodes, we've been looking at Christianity and world religions. In comparing the many contradictory beliefs of these religions, we were able to conclude that all religions may be false, but they cannot all be true. The law of non-contradiction tells us that two opposing beliefs Ideas and statements cannot both be true at the same time, and therefore the claim that all religions are serving the same God is false. Over these past two episodes, we've also seen that the difference between Christianity and all of the other major world religions is that no other religious leader claimed to be God. Not only that, but we saw that Jesus rose from the dead, proving to be who he said he was, In today's episode, and over the next several episodes, we're going to be addressing the arguments that the Bible was written by man, and is filled with fairy tales, and can't be trusted, or that the Bible has been changed over hundreds of years to make it say what Christians want it to say. To address these arguments, we're going to look at several things. We will look at what makes the Bible unique from all other religious books. We will also be looking at manuscript evidence archaeological evidence, and extra-biblical evidence for the Bible. So what makes the Bible unique from all other religious books? The difference between the Christian Bible and all other religious books is that the Christian Bible contains predictive prophecy. In their book, A General Introduction to the Bible, Norman Geisler and William Nix point out that other books claim divine inspiration, such as the Quran, the Book of Mormon and parts of the Veda, but none of these books contains predictive prophecy. As a result, fulfilled prophecy is a strong indication of the unique divine authority of the Bible. These prophecies that I'm talking about are so precise that skeptics claim that they must have been written after the events took place, or that Christians altered the original text to make the text say what Christians wanted it to say. I want to address these arguments, but I'll do that later in this episode. First, let's look at some of the many predictive prophecies found in the Old Testament. The first prophecy that I want us to look at is from Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, where it says, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, She will be built and of the temple your foundation will be laid. What's interesting about this verse is that it mentions the name Cyrus. Now, if you're unfamiliar with world history, Cyrus was the king of the Persians. However, when Isaiah wrote this prophecy, Cyrus hadn't even been born. In fact, when Isaiah wrote this prophecy, the Assyrians were beginning to come onto the scene, and they later became the world's first superpower. After the Assyrians came the Babylonians, and after the Babylonians came the Persians. And it was under the Persian rule that Cyrus was king. So here, in this verse, Isaiah the prophet is looking 150 years into the future. He's looking past the Assyrians, past the Babylonians to the time of the Persians, and he mentions Cyrus by name. Not only that, but he mentions that Cyrus will shepherd God's people and have them rebuild the temple of God, which, when we look at the archaeological evidence for the Bible, we see evidence for these events actually taking place. And I'll give more details about these events in our next episode when I discuss the archaeological evidence for the Bible. Another example of predictive prophecy is found in 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 2, where it says, He cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. If you're unfamiliar with the kings of the Old Testament, Josiah became the 16th king of Judah. However, what's incredible about this passage is that it was written 300 years before Josiah was even born so i've just given you two incredible examples of predictive prophecy from the old testament but an even more incredible example of predictive prophecy comes from the prophet daniel in his prophecy daniel foretells the coming messiah in fact Gleason Archer points out in his Survey of the Old Testament that the calculations in Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 shows that the Messiah's public ministry would begin in AD 26, which would be 483 years after the decree of Ezra to rebuild Jerusalem. Archer then points out that three and a half years later, in the middle of the seven-year week, the Messiah would be crucified while atoning for sin as the Most Holy One. Daniel goes on to give even more detail in chapter 9, verse 26. In this verse, he said that after the Messiah had been killed, the city of Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. And we know from history that the temple was destroyed by the Roman general Titus and his army in 70 AD. And this took place when the Romans besieged Jerusalem during what is called the First Jewish-Roman War. So, in case you got lost in all the details of this prophecy, Daniel wrote that the Messiah was coming. Not only that, but that he will begin his ministry in AD 26 and that he would later be killed. More specifically, Daniel wrote that the Messiah would be killed before Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed, which as I said, happened in 70 AD. What's amazing is that this prophecy by Daniel was given over 500 years before Jesus was even born. When you look at each of these specific details, The only person in human history that meets these requirements is Jesus of Nazareth. These are just a few of the examples of predictive prophecies found in the Christian Bible. But as I said, there are many others. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are over 100 prophecies fulfilled by Jesus regarding when and where he would be born, as well as the nature of his birth. Besides these details, there's also prophecies regarding the life and ministry of Jesus, as well as how he would die, and that he would rise from the dead. For example, regarding the birth of Jesus, Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Later in Isaiah chapter seven verse fourteen, he wrote, "Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel." We see the fulfillment of this prophecy in Matthew chapter one, verses twenty-two to twenty-three, at the birth of Jesus, where Matthew writes. That all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, at this point, you may be wondering how Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 to 23 can claim to be the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. You may be thinking this because Isaiah says that his name will be Emmanuel, whereas in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, it tells us that the baby's name was not Emmanuel, but was instead Jesus. But pay attention to what Matthew writes. He says that these things fulfill what the prophets spoke about, that the virgin shall conceive and bury son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. But not only that, but Matthew goes on to explain what Emmanuel means. He writes, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, Matthew rightly understood that Isaiah was not saying that the baby's name would actually be Emmanuel. No, Jesus' name was not Emmanuel. Jesus was the meaning of Emmanuel. Jesus was God with us, which is what Matthew was explaining in his gospel. The name Emmanuel is just one of the many titles for Jesus. It's it's a description of who he is. To say that Jesus would be called Emmanuel means Jesus is God, and that he dwelt among us in his incarnation, and that he is always with us. Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus was God making his dwelling among us. And John makes this clear in his gospel when he writes in John chapter 1 verse 1 and John chapter 1 verse 14 that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Regarding this verse in Matthew, the early church understood clearly what Matthew was doing. In fact, Irenaeus wrote, Behold, A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us, clearly signifying that both the promise made to the fathers had been accomplished, that the Son of God was born of a virgin, that he himself was Christ, the Savior, whom the prophets had foretold, not, as these men assert that Jesus was he who was born of Mary, but that Christ was he who descended from above. Matthew might rightly have said, Now the birth of Jesus was on the wise. But the Holy Ghost, foreseeing the corruptors of the truth and guarding by anticipation against their deceit, says by Matthew, But the birth of Christ was on the wise, and that he is Emmanuel, lest perchance we might consider him as a mere man. I've mentioned before that Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others claim that the deity of Christ was something that the church developed over hundreds of years after the death of Christ. However, these verses that I just referred to make it clear that the deity of Christ was not something that the church created. It was something that the church clearly recognized. In fact, Irenaeus, whom I just quoted, was a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. My point here is that to argue that the church deified Christ hundreds of years after his death is to ignore the historical and the biblical evidence. Regarding prophecies that relate to the life of Jesus, Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners. The Old Testament even described the way in which he would be betrayed. For example, Zechariah chapter 13 verse 6 foretold that the Messiah would be betrayed by friends and that his hands would be wounded. Not only that, but Zechariah also said in Zechariah chapter 11 verse 12 that the Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And both of these prophecies from Zechariah were fulfilled with the betrayal of Judas Iscariot in Matthew chapter 26 verse 15 Matthew chapter 26 verses 47 to 56 as well as other gospel accounts when it comes to these prophecies how do you explain the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 11 verse 13 which says that the 30 pieces of silver would be returned not only that but that these 30 pieces of silver would be used to buy a potter's field which is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 8, when Judas returned the 30 pieces of silver and the priests used the money to buy a potter's field. How do you explain this? The answer is, it can't be explained, apart from the Bible being divinely inspired. Regarding prophecies that talk about the death of Jesus... Psalm 22, verses 14 through 18 says, I am poured out like water. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. The fulfillment of this prophecy comes in Matthew chapter 27, verse 35 where Matthew describes the crucifixion of Jesus and says, When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. John also wrote about the crucifixion in his gospel, where he wrote in John chapter 19, verse 34, that one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and at once there came blood and water. The interesting thing about this prophecy is that it was written over a thousand years before Christ was born or crucified. Another key prophecy regarding the death of Jesus comes in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, where it says that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. The incredible thing is that Isaiah wrote this prophecy over 700 years before Christ was born. Besides these prophecies, there are also other prophecies regarding the resurrection of Jesus, which we will have to look at in our next episode. That's all the time that we have for today. Come back next time as we continue to look at biblical prophecy to see how it proves the reliability of scripture. In our next episode, we will look at the prophecies that pointed to the resurrection of Jesus. We will also look at mathematical probability to see if it's possible for the prophecies that are fulfilled by Jesus to be fulfilled by anybody else. Is it possible for anyone to fulfill these passages that Christians claim Jesus fulfilled? Come back next time to find out. God bless.